Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics while trying to provide a little bit of a policy angle and a little bit of U.S. politics and hopefully trying to make it fun. I'm excited this week to welcome Sonia Gibbs, who is our Managing Director and the Head of Sustainable Finance. Today, we're going to try to discuss and, well, if we do it right, demystify the concept of what is called blended finance, which is a word that is talked about in the sustainable finance community. So first of all, Sonia, thank you very much for being here. It's a real pleasure. It's great to be here, Clay. And let me just start with, well, blended finance 101, if you will. Uh, For those of our listeners who are not entirely familiar with the blended finance concept, what is it and who are some of the big players and how do we think about it? So look, you know, blended finance is really just what it sounds like. It's an approach that combines public, philanthropic, and private capital to fund really big and important projects that have a significant amount of risk involved. So on the public side, you're normally talking about development finance. Think, for example, you know, the World Bank IFC, another multilateral development bank, a government, maybe a national development bank. So that's the public side of things. And there are a lot of philanthropic foundations that have operated in this area for for many years, funding blended finance projects. So think maybe the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and so on. And so both the public and the philanthropic pieces of this, they basically de-risk the deals, for example, by providing what you might call first loss capital, by taking the first loss if if there are losses. And they can do this, they can safely provide this kind of de-risking because they have development mandates or charitable mandates, and they have a lower cost of capital. So once they do that, this helps attract and bring in private sector funding that could be from banks or pension funds, other institutional investors that are going to need commercial rates of return. So basically, blended finance is just a way of structuring funding that allows firms or development banks with different objectives to kind of invest alongside each other, you know, while achieving their objectives and whether that's financial return or or climate impact or social impact, development impact, or or some mix of, of all of the above. And you know, this isn't new, right? I mean, we've worked in infrastructure for years. It's been used to fund big infrastructure projects for decades. Think about, you know, public-private partnerships or PPPs. Those are a kind of blended finance. What's new, I think, is the application of this blending in the context of sustainability and sustainable finance. You know, think about climate resilient infrastructure, maybe a way to commercialize new technologies that are risky and and, and hard to do commercially, like carbon capture and storage. You know, so lots of applications here. And if you can get around these barriers for private investors, you know, the high levels of risk and the, the kind of not so great risk return trade-offs, blended finance can help mobilize this private capital that we've, we've got to have to, to meet our, our climate and sustainable development goals, which was a huge topic at uh, COP27, the big climate conference in, in Egypt last month. So let me, I actually want to get to COP27, but let me one more kind of 
throat clearing aspect, I guess, which is how can blended finance support the flow of climate finance to emerging markets? Because usually when you hear about it, you do hear about it in the context of emerging markets, mostly. Maybe maybe it's because of what we do here at IAF, though. That's where we hear it the most. But maybe you could kind of say why it's so important for emerging markets. It's really very true. And you, when you think about it, it's kind of a double whammy for emerging markets, right? Because they have economic vulnerabilities by, by definition. They're lower income countries that, that, are, that are struggling in many ways to, to get their development done. A lot of them have high debt levels, which is something we look closely at at the, the IIF. And many of them are in parts of the world that are extremely climate vulnerable, whether that's you know floods or hurricanes or drought. You know, so it's a really challenging combination of circumstances. So blended finance can help address what we call a climate finance gap for emerging economies. They need trillions. What they're getting is, is at best, billions. You know, so we have a long way to go here. And it's a good time to be thinking about this because financial firms all over the world, so many of our IAF members, have made really ambitious commitments to climate goals and to providing climate finance. So this is this is a, an opportune time to, to bring these parts of the equation together. And, you know, another thing to think about, capital flows, getting money to emerging markets. And as we know from our work here at the IIF, it's inherently cyclical, right? And it's volatile. So when times are good, as they were when we had super low interest rates and so on after the financial crisis, Emerging markets provide nice, strong growth, high returns, and that pulls in global capital. But it works the other way around as well. And that's kind of what we're seeing now, right? We've got rising rates. We've got high inflation, concerns about recession. It's not a terrific environment for emerging markets. So blended finance can really help. And the other piece of this is, you know, the multilateral development banks, the international financial institutions, historically, they've always had a key role to play in stabilizing these capital flows and, and catalyzing private capital for emerging economies. And of course, you know, they provide the technical assistance, they do project development, and they improve, you know, institutional capacity. They help governments in emerging markets do a better job with their institutions, with their legal and regulatory frameworks, and so on. And all of that really helps attract private investment. And blended finance simply takes that one step further. For example, if they can take first losses in a, in a green funding vehicle or a securitization, they increase the expected risk return trade-off for private investors. So it's a great way of galvanizing capital to emerging markets, as you say. Okay. So uh, now let's go back to COP27. You were on the ground there. That was last month in Sharm el-Sheikh um, in Egypt. What role did the conversations about blended finance take in the COP27 talks? I assume there were some. Any new insights, any breakthroughs, that type of thing that happened in Sharm el-Sheikh on blended finance? You know, wandering the the, the halls of, of in, in Sharm el-Sheikh, and it was basically giant tents with lots of pavilions. It was a bit like mm. a like a trade fair. All different countries had different pavilions and different, um, you know, governments and so on. And blended finance was really everywhere you looked, the conversation was about blended finance in some way. And when you think about it, if COP26 in Glasgow was the, the year of promises in COP, you know, COP27 was all about implementation. How do you take those promises and make them any kind of reality? You know, so there was a lot of, lot of voices 
including in non-governmental organizations, civil society, everybody calling for, for more blended finance and to, to scale it up, right? Because that, that's part of the, the real challenge here is that it's, it's, it's not easy, but it's straightforward to do blended finance for one specific deal, very tailored. You know, you work on the deal for, for years and it comes to fruition. Scaling it up and bringing in like institutional capital, that's a lot harder. So that was part of the conversation at, at COP. South Africa is a good example here. South Africa needs something like 250 billion U.S. dollars over the next 30 years to move away j- just from to move away from coal-fired power. You know, coal-fired power is a, a widely used source of energy in, in most emerging markets, and it's a key source of climate damage, and we need to move away from it. 250 billion. So scaling blended finance would really help here to to give a little perspective, right? Over the past five years, blended finance flows have been, I don't know, maybe 10 billion a year, but only a little tiny fraction of that, 12 million or so, goes to low-income countries that are most affected by climate change. So a lot of blended finance is actually used in in mature economies, you know, here in the US or or you know, throughout Europe or Japan to fund public-private partnerships types of arrangements to to fund big infrastructure projects that go to fight climate change or or what have you. But in an emerging markets, they're just not getting those flows. So what we heard in COP was all around things like standardization in blended finance structures, diversification of risk, you know, using different types of sectors and geographical locations and structures to diversify an investor's portfolio in blended finance and simplicity. And if you're going to tap global capital at scale, you need that kind of standardization. But at the same time, there was also a lot of talk at Comp about how you make blended finance work for small projects, you know, cook stoves in in a, in a small, low-income African economy, for example. So it has to kind of work in, in, in both directions. So I, I think, you know, lots of new initiatives, the Indian G20 presidency launched a, a global blended finance alliance, you know, this year and uh, has a, had a building on a roadmap that they had done back in, in 2018. And, you know, that would include partners like the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero or GFANS, the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, Rockefeller Foundation. So you can see all the, the moving pieces here that come together to make blended finance work. And then finally, I just say that the Central Banks and Supervisors Network for Greening the Financial System, which is the NGFS. And they too are launching an initiative to uh, bring together stakeholders in blended finance and help this whole process of, of scaling. So there'll be a, a handbook on best practices in blended finance that the NGFS will be working on next year. And we at the IIF, as you know, will be, will be helping them with this task. Excellent. But let me come to you. Can oh, I can I okay. can I hit you with a question, Clay, here? Sure. And I think that would be an, a nice segue here. We've been talking about COP, we've been talking about how countries approach development finance, and that's always had you know political angle to it. So, you know, you were a former US official, and when you think about the conversations you've been hearing recently here in the US at senior US officials, Janet Yellen, talking about blended finance and scaling blended finance. How do you see the U.S. approach to to financing from multilateral development banks like the World Bank? And and more broadly, how does all this fit 
in the context of, of U.S.-China relations? Well, it's a great question. Let me just say, so just one step back, the, the U.S. leadership under Janet Yellen, so first of all, it's important to note the United States is the biggest shareholder of almost all of these different multilateral development banks, whether it's the World Bank, the African Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction Development. The United States is almost always either the number one or number two biggest player. Janet Yellen actually has called for trying to figure out a way for those institutions to actually expand beyond their kind of country-led models to look at what some people call global public goods issues, including kind of how do you deal with climate change? And the different methodologies would include very much blended finance. How do you use finance that can attract the private sector and move it towards lower income countries and emerging markets. Now, the interesting thing in some respects is I'm sure that there will be some political arguments and fights here in the United States on that, but actually one of the bigger political arguments and fights will be from emerging markets themselves. And that's because they will be concerned that a move towards global public goods will move them away from getting money from these institutions that is very healthy for their economies to help with healthcare issues or to help with uh, other types of infrastructure issues or to help with education or something along those lines. And so I think there's a bit going to be a bit of a pushback by some countries to, to Secretary Yellen's ideas so I think that's why you see the U.S. government has come up with a second idea, which is how do you stretch the current balance sheets of these institutions a little bit more so that basically there's more money available for financing kind of the types of projects that Secretary Yellen's talking about, while at the same time not harming the projects that are going forward to these specific countries. How that gets worked out is still going to be a mystery, and it'll be difficult to do because it is a shift of the model that the institutions have been using for a very long time. How it plays out with China is interesting because the U.S. and China relationship, as and I've said this on other podcasts, is not good. It's really bad. There has been some hope over the last few years that, well, maybe when it comes to climate change and a global public type of good that could be an area for the United States and China to come together. The jury's still out on that. Um, they are trying, and they are clearly working together more in that area than a lot of other areas, um, though that's a very low bar to jump over. And um, so we'll see, and hopefully there will be breakthroughs in trying to work with the United States and China that can break through at these different institutions but there are so many outside factors that really have very little to do with these issues that I'm not convinced it'll work, but I always remain hopeful. So I hope that helps a little bit. Good to be hopeful. Yeah, the challenge of stretching MDB balance sheets is, is, is a tough one, isn't it? It gets into kind of things like who holds the power at the, the multilateral development banks and, you know, should China have more of a role or, you know, will the U.S.? agree to that. It's a, it's a tough set of issues. It is. And also you, then it, it gets into some technical issues about how you deal with rating agencies. And so it is, it's going to be tricky, but I, th I think that there does seem to be some uh, momentum behind it. All right. Let me, let me go back a little bit to you on blended finance and maybe get a little more technical, which is, 
So how are blended finance deals structured? Um, you kind of started talking about this a little bit with uh, your South Africa kind of in a broader sense, but any examples out there that you might want to highlight? And I know that that's something you, you mentioned, the handbook that IIF is going to be doing with the NGFS and hopefully with others as well. And part of that's going to be, what are some cases out there that might be replicable or even scalable? So how do you see that? No, absolutely. And and maybe just taking a step back and, and thinking about how these deals work in, in, in practice, you know, there's there's kind of three elements to a successful blended finance deal. I mean, by definition, it's going to involve some leverage, right? Because we've been talking about the strategic use of development and, and philanthropic capital to catalyze private sector capital. So you're leveraging the, the balance sheets of these types of, of institutions. And second, that they have impact, right? And that's really important when you think about blended finance in the, in the context of sustainable finance. You know, the types of investors who put money into these types of deals need to be able to see impact, see and measure and assess the impact of what they're doing. So whether that's social, environmental, or, or economic impact, impact has to be part of it. And finally, the third characteristic of, of one of these deals is, is in the way that the return comes through. So these private investors, these, these result in market-based risk-adjusted returns for private investors that meet their business and fiduciary goals. And that's really important, right? Because if you if you think about all of the the global assets under management, you see figures like, oh, a third of these assets are are sustainable investment or responsible investment. What does that mean? It does not mean that all of a sudden these turn into big philanthropies. No, they have fiduciary duty, which specifies very clearly that they need you know to to maximize returns as an element of what they owe to their clients, their their fiduciaries. So. Returns are a key part of this as well. So leverage, impact, and returns. And some of the structures, you know, funds like equity funds, debt funds, fund of funds, and those have consistently accounted for the biggest share of, of blended finance transactions. The most common type of blending, you know, you start with concessional debt or concessional first loss debt or equity or investment stage grants or debt equity structures that uh, take that risk at, at below financial market returns. And then risk insurance is another important part of these structurings. Think about uh, MIGA, for example, part of the World Bank that offers political risk insurance. And that's actually one piece that, that really needs, we need to see more of the ability to, to insure these, these transactions. But you'd asked about some, some examples, and let me give you some, some interesting ones here. And I'd, I'd start with Belize, which is, which is a fascinating case. You know, they did a debt for nature swap with the Nature Conservancy. And that actually brought down Belize's external debt by about 10 percentage points of GDP. And that really improved opportunities to protect marine ecosystems. And that was the whole point in, in, in Belize. And this was a, a complex deal. I mean, anytime you're talking about uh, government debt and transactions that involve protection of, of the environment or the marine habitat, it's, it's always complicated. And private investors, you know, had had some element of concern because Belize, like many countries, has had the experience of default, you know, in, in their history. So in this case, uh, the U.S. Development Finance Corp., the, the DFC, they came in and provided insurance against default. And they, they moved, you know, we talked about credit ratings. They moved the credit rating for these 
blue bonds, as they called them, because protecting oceans, blue, they moved that credit rating all the way up to investment grade, which was a really significant credit uplift. And it, it just allowed investors to have more confidence to, to come in. And one particular aspect of this deal was that it involved debt owed to private creditors. So it was financed by an entirely different class of private investors. So it was really remarkable, the Belize deal. And one other I'd highlight is the Africa Risk Capacity Insurance Company. And that's a, an African natural disaster insurance pool. This is interesting because it's kind of in the insurance space. So it's a kind of specialized hybrid mutual insurance company and in that they give cover against weather-related food security emergencies. As we know, that's a, a really very, very challenging situation faced by, by many emerging economies around food security right now. But it's not just, you know, a consequence of the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which has impacted food security, but it's chronic. Right. As, as we know, this goes back years, weather related food security concerns are endemic. So for this company, they had a, an insurance pool launched in, in 2014. It had four countries, five seasons insured against drought for uh, 129 million U.S. dollars. And they had new member countries, Kenya, Malawi, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Senegal, Gambia. And so uh, this is all affiliated with the, the African Union. So really interesting examples in the blended finance space. All right. Thank you very much. I have maybe like one last question. Let's call it my out question. I had one more for you too. <laughs> oh, well, go ahead. Then you go ahead and then I'll, I'll do mine. So, you know, we've been talking about the deal structuring and how all of this works, but maybe again, if you could share a little bit from a U.S. perspective. So Leaving emerging markets aside for just a minute, uh, blended finance is often, you know, seen through a lens of public-private partnerships. These these PPPs, as we call them. So, how do these work in in the U.S., for example, in in infrastructure and 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 more broadly, how does this fit into the U.S. political context around climate and environmental issues? We had the Inflation Reduction Act, a great fanfare there. What do you think of all of this? So this is a tricky one, um, and I'll explain that. And the United States is kind of strange, I think, on this front. First of all, unlike most countries, there really isn't a development bank in the United States. And I think actually the Inflation Reduction Act calls for trying to create one, but there really isn't one. A lot of the way infrastructure is financed in the United States is through municipalities, so this, at basically the city level or the county level. In order to help attract finance, they provide tax incentives. And so those tax incentives make it so that that's the best way to actually get the money in, right? And so as you provide the tax incentives to issue bonds, it's actually a way to attract more money in. And so in, in that respect, you're getting private capital, but it's through a tax incentive structure as opposed to a blended finance structure. That being said, there are good examples of PPP type of projects, or at least blended finance, even if it's not officially a PPP. There is no better example in some respects than how we got to our vaccines in the United States, which was the government of the United States put out mandates plus some financing as almost like a pull mechanism. And you had private sector actors, the, the biggest ones were Pfizer and Moderna, and Johnson and Johnson, and they came in with vaccines that, let's face it, have been amazing for us on COVID nineteen and kind of got us out of a huge hole. 
And it was an example of the public and the private sector financing working together to do something that was incredibly difficult to do. And they did it in a very, very short period of time. Um, with the Inflation Reduction Act, I think that there is some, maybe some good positive ways of incentivizing. Um, unfortunately, right now, the Inflation Reduction Act has been is mainly being associated uh, globally with being a protectionist measure by the United States, especially on electronic vehicles, where we're providing incentives for U.S. or subsidies, really, for U.S., Canadian, and Mexican firms and discriminating at least sort of uh, against Korean, Japanese, and European firms. And so that's become a big, big deal. But hopefully they'll find a way through that and we can kind of get back to the more positive aspects that are in the Inflation Reduction Act. So my bottom line is it's complicated and it's different than a lot of other countries, partially because the United States' financing mechanisms are very different. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a form of blended finance. It's just a different form than what uh, largely I think we've been discussing today. It's unfortunate, isn't it, that the, the political elements of this come in to uh, make the discussions around international coordination more more complicated. Same things that you see in the G20. It's a good point. And, you know, as the U.S., I mean, we should be a little bit better at this not being protectionist. But frankly, that's kind of where the U.S. has been rolling for the last six, seven years. So, all right. My last question was, all right, we've talked about it a little bit. The issue you mentioned earlier how do we just scale this up? I mean, it is, it's an important issue, but there is a big need out there and we're only getting so much. We're kind of scratching at the surface on blended finance. So any thoughts on like, how do you ramp it up? And you know, you're not going to do it overnight, but how do you get it to go to become a much bigger financing mechanism? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the challenge. We know that blended finance can work and it can work very well, but it's getting from really the millions to the billions and not even to to, to mention the, the trillions that are needed. So so a big hill to to climb. Look, I think one of the, the issues, and we heard a lot about this at uh, a climate conference at COP in, in Egypt, you got to move on from project level. We know how to make project level work to sort of portfolio level and even, even, even market-wide approaches to, to blended finance. Nobody said this was going to be easy. You still have to tailor to local conditions. And because a lot of this is directed toward emerging markets, countries have their own issues around national sovereignty, their own political environments, legal environments, and so on. So you've got to do that tailoring. But I think one of the things we need to do is a better job at deploying the whole spectrum of development finance tools, you know, advisory work, um, having the right regulatory environment as well, and all kinds of deploying the whole toolkit of instruments, including sort of both pricing and, and risk mitigation features. So coming back to that insurance capacity, we need more more MIGAs, more MIGA-like facilities and strengthen and, and expand their capacity. A key thing here is, you know, one often talks about a mobilization ratio, right? For every dollar of public finance, how much private finance can you catalyze? It's not a super high number at, at present, I think. Uh, you know, there are different estimates, but I've seen something like for every dollar of public finance, you're only getting, I don't know, a quarter, 25 cents in, in, in private finance. So that mobilization ratio needs to be improved. More transparency. You know, one of the big things about ESG investment, when you think about finance for, for emerging markets, you know, into which blended finance falls, 
One of the big pools of capital that that ought to be much better tapped is responsible, sustainable ESG investment. That's a big pool of global capital. We talked about needing to see impact. Those investors need to see the impact of what they're doing. So transparency is an important part of this, right? There, these deals can't be sort of back room and written down somewhere that where no one can see them. It has to not be opaque. It has to be transparent on, on, on what the transactions look like, how they're priced, what the results are. So the private sector really needs to see this to, to come in at, at scale. And finally, I just go back to, to what you had mentioned earlier of maybe a different way of thinking about how we use the balance sheets of, of development finance institutions, multilateral development banks, and so on, not just increasing their size, you know, so that they can do a better job, but how they use their, their balance sheets, how they leverage them, how we think about ratings for these um, institutions so that they can still keep their low cost of capital, but maybe just being a bit of, taking a bit more creative approach to the, to the problem. Well, Sonia Gibbs, let me just say thank you very much. This was really, really helpful. This is a, you can tell it's a complicated subject. I thought you did a great job of making it more understandable. And hopefully we'll find a way forward. We have a lot of work to do, but it also seems like it's pretty worthy work. So thanks again. Thank you. Great conversation. Thanks, Clay. Now it's time for my three, two, one, which is my three takeaways two things that I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact of the week. My first takeaway is there is a huge financing need in emerging markets, and some of those countries have pretty big debt problems. So one way of addressing this is through blended finance, and that will it'll be critical to figure out ways to scale it. And Sonia Gibbs gave points about how to do that, but also gave discussion about how difficult it will be. Next, blended finance is essentially, what is it? It's a de-risking tool. It's a de-risking for the private sector and how to combine finance and leverage it upward. So mitigating risk is especially important in emerging markets and also in addressing something like climate. And third, there's a growing need to think about the multilateral development bank's balance sheets in a different way. Getting creative for with the rules of blended finance could hopefully get the MDB money to be more catalytic in addressing climate issues and also just to address climate issues in a broader way. Two things I'm looking forward to. One is this discussion about the multilateral development banks. 2023 could be a big year. Are they going to make these changes that we talked about? Will there be a lot of pushback from emerging markets about changing the multilateral development banks too dramatically. I think that we have to look forward to that and see how the discussions develop. And second is the Republican Party will take over in January of the House of Representatives. There's been a lot more skepticism from the Republican Party than the Democratic Party on climate change issues. Will this affect something like blended finance? I'll give you my own prediction, which is, I don't think so. I think that that's not the area that the Republicans are worried about. They have other worries in this area, and we've discussed them before on previous podcasts, and I'm sure we'll discuss them in the future. But I don't know whether it's the blended finance and working with the MDBs is where there will be such an issue. But only time will tell. And finally, here's my one sports fact of the week. Last week, I spoke about the World Cup for uh, soccer, and we are now down to eight 
teams as of the recording of this podcast with only one of my, if you guys remember, Asian, African, or North American teams finally making it to the semifinals. So there's only one team left. That's Morocco. I don't know if they'll make it to the semifinals, but they've been pretty impressive so far. But what struck me as I watched the Netherlands, well, let me be honest, whip the United States, was that I remained heartened, even when the Netherlands went up one to nothing, until they scored with seconds left in the first half and made it two to nothing. This seems like the worst score in the world when your team is down at high-level soccer. Because at high-level soccer, it is just very hard to come back from a two-to-nothing deficit. Well, funny that, but we had a great occurrence of something like that happening in the sports world this week. Not in the World Cup, but in the college women's soccer championship here in the United States. UCLA, which stands for University of California, Los Angeles, came back from a two-to-nothing deficit with roughly 10 minutes to play in the game to tie North Carolina. The last goal, by the way, was scored with 15 seconds to play in regulation. And as an aside, there is absolutely no way that UCLA did not foul that North Carolina goalie on that play. But it was still a goal, and maybe the referees need to look in the mirror on that one. Anyway, it was clearly very exciting, and UCLA won in overtime, just the second time they have ever been the champion in women's college soccer. North Carolina has won it 21 times. Also, it was the first time a first-year coach, Margarita Eozaza, has won a national championship. But I was right about the 2-0 to score. In the 41 years of this championship, that is the first time any team has ever come back from such a score to win. So congratulations to UCLA, and I hope whichever team you root for in the World Cup does not go down 2-0. to zero. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve it and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes, by the way, can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week and goodbye.